He is risen. Almost. He is risen. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 8, again with verse 1 through 4. We talked a little bit about it last week, but um, I really wanted to kind of land here for Easter because it makes sense. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, the author Philip Yancey tells the story of Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway grew up in a very devout evangelical family, and yet there he never experienced the grace of Christ. He lived a, what would be called a libertine life. Most of us would call it desolute. But there was no father, no parent waiting for him, and he sank into this mireless, graceless depression. A short story he wrote reveals perhaps the grace that he so longed for, so hoped for. It's the story of a Spanish father who decided to reconcile with his son who had run away to Madrid. The father, in a moment of remorse, takes out this ad in the newspaper, El Libro. The ad read, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. When the father arrived at the square in hopes of meeting his son, he found 800 Pacos waiting to be reunited with their father. There is a need in the human heart for forgiveness, reconciliation, and acceptance. Why? I believe it's because we all have this image of God built into us that longs for connectedness. It longs for relationship. It longs for intimacy, even in a world so broken that being connected is rarely a safe place. Some of you have experienced that, haven't you? This world was broken in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and inevitably sinned against us as well, literally against all of mankind. Paul has spent the last few chapters of Romans leading up to chapter 8 dealing with the issue of our broken condition. He very powerfully lays out the problem of our sin in chapter 7, ending with these words in chapter 7. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It doesn't sound good, does it? But it kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, when you stop and think about it, it kind of sounds like us. Even when we want to live by the law of God so that we honor God, we find ourselves flailing and failing all over the place. It's not that we don't know what's right or want what's right. It's not that we don't want to do what's right. It's that there's this constant battle within us to get there, to get to that place where we've surrendered it all to the Spirit who lives in us, and we walk by the Spirit. That's a place that we get to from time to time, but it's hard to stay there for some reason. The requirement 
of perfect obedience to the law of God, folks, is a done deal. You have to know that. I mean, Paul's driving to this one singular point. It's the good news of Easter that all of the doing has already been done for us. And even though we're not perfect and we fail and we flail, there's no condemnation. The penalty for our sin has already been paid. Last week I said that this new freedom is kind of a matter of perspective, the perspective of being uh, how we stand in Christ. We have to understand that perspective. Our standing is one of complete and utter forgiveness, complete and utter acceptance. It's not about our performance, so it's never going to be about what I do. It's always going to be about what Jesus did. Listen, I said this last week, and I hope you you thought about that all week long. You are free to fail. This is what no condemnation really means. You are free to fail. You are free to fall. You are free to get it wrong. It won't be held against you because that's what no condemnation means. God has removed condemnation from the table. Here's the perspective that I asked you to own. The law, the requirements of righteousness or right living before God cannot be missed. You cannot miss this one. You cannot fail it and you cannot botch it up. There is no condemnation means that God already got it right for you. And that is a perspective from which freedom can reign in our lives. Romans 8, chapter 1, says this, and it says it really clear. We don't have to guess about this. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free. There's where the freedom comes. Has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this morning. We celebrate this morning because of what happened on a cross over 2,000 years ago. And what happened on the cross was the sealing of this gift of grace, this gift that says there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It is that grace that the cross purchased for us, that we could be connected, that we could be related to you in intimacy without fear, because it is a safe place. It's a safe place because Jesus made it safe, and he cannot fail. While failure is part of my DNA because of Adam, Success is part of my DNA because of Jesus. And in that, I want us to rest, Father God. So I pray that you speak to our hearts this morning. 
Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive all of this grace that you have for us and to understand what comes with it, this amazing opportunity that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all remember this song, uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy? It's kind of a raggy kind of thing. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> Joshua. I, I, I like that song. It's, it's one of the, I, it should have been a Christian song. I don't know. It, it just should have been a Christian song. Because, you know, the reality is that as believers, we should be the people who don't worry, right? You know, worry doesn't gain us anything. Jesus talked about that. We shouldn't be people who worry. We should actually be people who are the happiest people on the planet because we've already had fear, worry, all those doubts, all that stuff dealt with for us on the cross. That's really what Paul is getting to here. After he talked about how, how he struggles with his sin in and, and chapter 7 and, and wanting to do right and, and doing the very thing that he didn't want to do, he gets to this climax that changes the whole perspective of the book of Romans. Up until chapter 8, the book of Romans is, is about the Jews and the law and all of the stuff that we have gotten wrong for so long. Paul dealt with that. He dealt with the fact that we, we live under condemnation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's dealt with all of that. Here's how he deals with it. He brings us to chapter 8, verse 1, and the rest of the book takes on a very different flavor. From here on out, Paul is on a totally different track. And this is kind of the the hinge pin. This is the fulcrum in the middle of the, the seesaw, so to speak, that changes everything for us, literally changes everything for us. There is no condemnation. What does that really mean? Well, the Greek word, katakarima, which means condemnation, appears only in the book of Romans. It appears twice. It appears here and it appears in chapter 5. It relates to the sentencing for a crime. Specifically, it relates to the penalty that is due for the crime. In the case of sin, the penalty is death. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, the good news that Paul is declaring is that death is off the table. But don't we all die? Yes, we do. Okay, are you afraid to answer that question? Do we not all die? Yeah, we do. So how does that work? Well, the first death is the death of the body. Everyone will experience separation from the body. Even Jesus died a physical death, and he was without sin. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Folks, there is, however, more than just a physical death to be experienced. Paul isn't talking about death in the terms of physical death. The Bible talks about a second death, which is the judgment of the soul. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Jesus was talking about a second death, the destruction of the soul. It is this second death, not the first death, the physical death, that relates to condemnation. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus completely and permanently paid for the debt of sin and the penalty of the law, which is condemnation unto death. He did it for every person who asks for his mercy and his grace. John eleven twenty five 25 says this. Jesus is talking. He's talking to his people. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, get this, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now, was Jesus trying to confuse people with rhetoric? Was he talking about a truth, perhaps, that we just didn't understand? A new truth, the truth of the reason why he came to earth as a man, the truth that is grounded in our salvation. It is said that Jesus was born to die. But the reality is that every person is born to die. Jesus was born not just to die, but to conquer death so that we might live. This is, this is really the exciting truth of Easter. Folks, he's alive. We ought to kind of live like we own that truth, shouldn't we? Yeah. Because he lives, we get to live too. Freed from condemnation that leads to death. This is the great difference between Christianity and every other religion on the planet. All but, the, all but four of the major religions of this world are based on mere philosophical propositions. Of the four that are based on personalities or people, not just philosophies, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. In 1900 BC, Judaism's father, Father Abraham, died. In 483 BC, Buddhists died. He wrote this about passing, with that other passing, utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. In other words, gone complete, nothing left. In, on June 6th of 632 AD, Muhammad died. He's still in the grave. But in AD 33, Jesus died only to come back to life three days later, appearing to over 500 people in a period of 40 days. Christianity is unique, not just in its grace, not just in what Jesus did for us, but how he did it. When Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist, was dying, his last words were this, earth is receding, heaven is approaching, this is my crowning day. The resurrection of Christ is a reminder that we need not fear anything about death. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 2 says, because Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. This law of life in the spirit and its counterpart, the law of sin and death, folks, are not actually at odds with one another. It kind of sounds like they are, but they're actually not at odds with one another. It's more like they're two different levels of reality. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
Paul uses the word law here, not in reference to the Mosaic law or any of the Old Testament commands or requirements. The law here simply refers to a principle, a principle of operation, not unlike the law of gravity. We, we pretty much understand how the law of gravity works, right? If I throw this thing up, it goes down, right? Why? Well, because the mass of the earth is quite a bit greater than whatever I can pick up and throw. And so that mass exerts gravity over the mass that I just tossed up in the air, and, and it sucks it back to itself. The law of gravity is pretty simple. D did you know that Isaac Newton didn't have an apple fall on his head to come up with that? You know, that's a myth. That's an old story. It's a myth. Actually, he was, however, at his mother's farm when he came up with the idea as he watched an apple fall from a tree out in the orchard. He started to question that. And because he was a mathematical genius, he started putting two and two together, and he started coming up with some equations that made sense describing what we call this word gravity. Paul's doing kind of the same thing here. It's a law. It's a way things work. It's not a commandment that he's talking about. He's talking about a principle of operation. As two principles of operation, Paul sees the law of sin and death and how it relates to condemnation. Sin and death and condemnation exist on, if I can kind of draw an imaginary line here, on this level of reality for us, okay? But there is another law at work, the law of life in the Spirit. And Paul is saying, while this reality is not a bad reality, it has to give way to this reality. This is a higher law of operation. This is a higher principle of being than this law. Does that make sense? I don't know if I, I, I quite got there with you. Paul doesn't try to degrade the commandments in any way, shape, or form. He honors them just like Jesus did. But there is a higher law of work called grace. Those who believe in Jesus are delivered from condemnation, which is a lower law. It's based on the written code. It's based on the commandments because they've submitted themselves to a higher law, the law of the power of grace. The lower law is the divine principle of judgment in regard to sin, the penalty for which is death. The higher law is the law of the Spirit, which bestows life in Christ Jesus. These two principles exist on the same plane. One has authority over the other. One is greater than the other. A modern-day example of how this might work. The written code the lower law, the lower law of existence, okay? It still exists, and it still applies to us. A modern-day Jew would be a good example of how that would work because they are people who still try to abide by the Old Testament law. In many respects, a great deal of Christianity today still live under this old code. We call that legalism. It's an adherence to a lower principle of righteousness, a principle that can never be met no matter how hard we try, no matter how good our intentions might be. That's why the law of the spirit of life is a higher 
principle. It is a higher law. Basically, the law of the Spirit trumps the law of the code or the commandments of the Old Testament. The law or principle of life in the Spirit comes in at a higher plane of existence or reality. Maybe the easiest way to say it is that if you have the Spirit of life living in you, then the commandments that you cannot hope to live up to become fulfilled for you in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. The law of life in the Spirit being a higher power of reality. Why does that matter? I know that that sounded kind of convoluted, and I kind of got through that, and you sort of maybe understood what I was trying to say. Why does it even matter? Well, because if you're in Christ and you're still trying to live satisfying the commandments as though they are the thing that connects you to God, then you missed the higher plane of living that's provided by the Spirit. Jesus died that we might have life and life more abundant. That is the promise of Easter for this life. Yes, Easter is a promise for life eternal because Jesus' resurrection from the dead defeated the grave, defeated death. Because he lives, we know that we will live too. But Easter is also the promise of an abundant life now as it holds the promise of life in the Spirit for us, a life free of condemnation or the fear of condemnation. Now, last week, I said that the wretched man of chapter 7 needs to be delivered from this body of death, right? That's what Paul said. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The reality here that Paul's trying to get to is that guy doesn't even exist anymore. Can I choose to live like that guy? If I'm a new creature in Christ, the old has, quote, passed away. That guy doesn't exist anymore. But can I choose to live like that guy bound to the law? Yeah, I can. I can choose to try to live up to the standard of righteousness in my own strength and my own power. Is that going to work for me? Not hardly. Or at least, okay, it's never worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you, but it doesn't work for me very well. The truth is, I've been born to a higher calling, a calling and position of true sonship in God. If I live with the mindset, then I don't need, if I live with that mindset, I don't need or want to go back to feeding the dead dog of sin that used to be the way I lived. That was my old nature. If I live with that mindset, then nothing will be able to entice me to crawl down off the sacrificial altar that my life is supposed to be placed on and go a different direction than what Jesus had designed for me. I want to stay right where I'm connected best to Jesus. It's a heavenly perspective on my earthly walk. Listen, I probably struggle with this particular concept more than anything else in my life when it comes to preaching the Word of God. I need to say this in a way that you understand my heart in it. And it might take me a minute to get there. So hold with me. In this hand, God offers you freedom. No condemnation, right? Your sins have been paid for, past, present, future, all done, right? Okay? And in this hand, 
God holds out for you something Jesus calls freedom, an abundant life. But here's the deal. In order to walk in this freedom, this abundant life, you have to commit to it. You have to go for it with everything that you are. If you hold anything back, that will trip you up. I promise it will trip you up. It just will. And you will wonder at some point in your life, why am I not, why am I not experiencing this thing called abundant life? Why am I not experiencing this incredible reward that the Bible talks about. And if you look back here at this side and you go, well, it's because there's no condemnation. And having taken that for granted, I went my own way. You see, no condemnation has this ability to trip us up. It wasn't meant to, but it does. Because we think, well, okay, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, there's forgiveness. I can go ahead and do this, and it's not going to, you know, I can cheat on my taxes. I can do this or whatever, you know. And, and, and it's going to be okay because, you know what? God forgives me. Jesus is cool. I don't really need to go to church today. I don't really need to worship God this week. I don't really need to read my Bible. I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus, Jesus and I, we're cool, okay? No condemnation, right? And the minute you go there, this is lost. Walking in freedom is lost. Now, is your salvation still intact? Yes. There is no condemnation for the dumb things that we do, and we all do plenty of them. Okay, but this is what's lost, the abundant life, the freedom that you were promised, the life that he died on a cross to give you. That's what's lost. And so as a preacher, I struggle with this because I want to shout it to the rooftops. There is therefore no condemnation. Get that right. You don't have to live in fear. And at the same time, I want to say, but... The problem is there's no but. It's an and. There is no condemnation and because of that, there is freedom and abundant life to be had. And I want you to connect the dots, so to speak, because they're the same life that you live. It's a life of no condemnation where freedom and abundance happen. But you can't take the condemnation thing for granted. Okay? Because if you do, this doesn't happen. Right. Now, I know that I, that was maybe a little long trip to get there, but did that make sense? Absolutely. Thanks, because um, that's one of the areas that, that I kind of struggle with. I want you to know how much God loves you and how much grace covers. It covers everything. Even my stupidity, it covers it all. My worst moment, it covers it all. And I have plenty of those but they're covered. And you know what makes it great? Not only are they covered, but as I walk further, more freedom comes. As I walk further, more abundance comes. As I get closer, more abundance comes. 
as I, I increase in my intimacy with God, more abundance comes. Am I where I want to be? No, and I hope you never be, you're never satisfied. I really do. I hope you are never satisfied because there's no point in being satisfied until we're dead and gone because that's when we're actually satisfied. That's where the Bible tells us and teaches us that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be like him. That will be satisfaction. Right here, I can't get no. Yeah, okay, satisfaction. That's just the truth of it. You won't experience it all until you are changed to be like him. But there is no reason why you can't get closer and closer and closer. And to do less, folks, to do less is to, please forgive me for saying this, it's to spit in the face of the sacrifice of the cross. It really is. The last part of verse 3 and 4. And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Did you notice how he phrased that? He condemns sin and sinful man, me, okay, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, the thing I couldn't live up to, might be fully met, not in Christ, but in me. He made it met in me. He made me righteous, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Your sin is condemned, and your right standing before God is assured because of the cross of Jesus. But the, the fact is true of those who are in Christ Jesus, and only those who are in Christ Jesus, and those who live according to the Spirit. You need to ask yourself, because I had to ask myself this last night while I was working on this sermon. You need to ask yourself, who is deciding how I live this life? Who is deciding how I live this life? Is it me or is it the Spirit in me? By the Spirit, I mean, of course, the Holy Spirit. You see, if the decisions I make day in and day out are made according to my wants, my desires, with no real thought to God, then it's most probable that I'm living according to the flesh. I'm living according to the old nature, the sinful nature. If the results of those decisions keep me from moving deeper and deeper into intimacy with God, then you can be rest assured that they are not coming from the Spirit in you. They're coming from you. Why? Because the Spirit always wants to draw us to Jesus. So wait a minute, Scott, this sounds like kind of double talk. I'm free from condemnation, but I'm not free to live my life the way I want to live? Sounds like I've traded one type of slavery for another. Yes, exactly. That's what the Bible says. Romans 6 says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. In other words, the gospel. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, maybe that didn't sound like quite a good deal, one type of slavery for another. If that were the end of the story, then I would agree with you, but it's not. You see, the truth of the matter is actually kind of startling. When you were a slave to sin, you didn't have any choice. You just did what the enemy told you to do. And when you did, you worked for an ungrateful 
taskmaster who only wanted to get what he could out of you. He was a continual, never-satisfied consumer of your life. Did you know that no one is the master of their own destiny? We like to think that. That's kind of the American thing, isn't it? Master of my own destiny. No one is the master of their own destiny. Both God and Satan have a plan for your life, and you will live one or the other. If you're not cooperating with God's plan, then by default, you're cooperating with the enemy. So, what did this no condemnation really get you? It got you a shot at freedom. Freedom from judgment by the law, by the rules that you couldn't live up to anyway. Being in Christ, folks, is freedom. For those who the Son has set free, they are free indeed. But freedom works in two ways. You are free to pursue intimacy with Jesus, and you are free not to. You are free to walk in joy, peace, and rest, or you're free to give in to fear, anger, and sorrow. This incredible truth of Easter is available for us, that there is no condemnation in Christ because of his death. He conquered the grave, and his resurrection promised us life. And it's a truth that we have to not just know, we have to embrace. Mental ascent won't bring you an abundant life. Only surrender does that. Only embracing Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, only embracing God's plan for your life, having lived life on God's terms, only living life in the power of the Spirit will get you the full privileges and rewards that Jesus died to provide. This is the truth and the promise of Easter. You can live life on your own terms. You really can. God is such a gentleman. He won't force you to do anything. You can have as much or as little of Jesus as you want, but you cannot have all that Jesus promised and all that Jesus paid for unless you embrace him fully. And there's where the choice of Easter lies. There's where that condemnation and freedom thing come into play. We all have a choice to make. Will we lay down our lives for the truth of the good news? Will we surrender fully to God and begin to live on God's terms? Can we just take bits and pieces? Can we just say, God, I want your forgiveness, but I really, Jesus, I don't want your life. Not really. Now, it doesn't work well. You'll end up disappointed. You have to go for both. It's not an either or. It's a both and. No condemnation and a life of freedom and abundance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us on the cross. It's an amazing truth. It's kind of hard even to, to wrap our minds fully around that you loved us the way that you did, that you chose because of the joy that you knew was coming, the joy involved in a relationship with us and reestablishing that relationship through you to God the Father, you gave yourself up on a cross for us because you so wanted to connect us to the Father that we might have life and life more abundant. Jesus, thank you for the dealing with sin 
for us on that cross and paving the way for us into freedom and into abundance. Let us not ever take for granted what you did, but lay down our lives that we might experience fully the freedom that you offer and fully the abundant life that you promised. In Jesus' name, amen.